0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I would like to welcome you to From the Editor's Desk, a podcast where myself and Kyle Rasur editor-in-chief at Compliance Week, unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week each month. We look at the top compliance stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. In this episode, Kyle and myself take a look at some of the stories that Compliance Week looked at in January 2023, as well as December 2022. And then we take a look at some of the upcoming stories that Compliance Week will take a look at in February of 2023. As always, we close with saving the world through talking about sports. I know you'll enjoy this episode of From the Editor's Desk. From the Editor's Desk is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to From the Editor's Desk, a podcast where we unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week, look at some top compliance stories, talk some sorts, and generally try to solve the world's problems. I'm your co-host, Tom Fox.
1: And I'm Kyle Brasser, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week. I'm thrilled to once again join Tom and bring to you some of the top stories that Compliance Week's following. We'll talk some sports, and uh, we'll really kind of just look ahead a new year and some of the storylines that we uh, think that will be emerging in compliance as the year goes on.
0: Kyle, what are some of the top stories Compliance Week, or yourself, because you're a great column this month, are reporting in Compliance Week?
1: Yeah, Tom, actually, one of the big things that we're reporting right as we're recording this podcast is some changes to the corporate enforcement policy at the Department of Justice announced by Kenneth Polite Jr., who's head of the criminal division. Polite, in a speech on January 17th, laid out some of the ways that they're going to be tweaking some of the guidelines under the CEP. One of the big takeaways, and again, this is something that's breaking for us and and something we're diving into right now, is further incentivization of self-disclosure and cooperation. And this is something that, with the Monaco memo in September, we got this understanding that this is a big point of emphasis for the Department of Justice. And now they're really taking it to that next level to say, here is the reward for you to do this. And we're talking about reductions of as much as I think 75% for companies that do voluntarily self-disclose, cooperate with the DOJ and receive that mark of cooperation. Again, I think the main thing the DOJ is trying to get to with all these changes is they want to see companies own their mistakes and are really trying to do as much as possible to get these companies to admit what's wrong and move on from there. Just a lot of big changes that have a lot of really strong compliance implications at the Department of Justice that's going on right now. And I guess not too surprising when you do have former chief compliance officers up and down the ranks of the DOJ's criminal division.
0: So one of the things that struck me, Kyle, was perhaps yourself, but myself and many others in the compliance community scratched our heads after the announcement of the Monaco memo, because it certainly seemed. The Department of Justice was putting more heat on compliance professionals, compliance programs, white collar defense lawyers involved in external investigations, and a lot more pressure. And we wondered would there be additional incentives? Well, that question was answered yesterday or on January 17th, I should say. And perhaps the department either was planning this all along or listened to some of the commentary, but they have, as you said, significantly increased the incentives with a real discount of 75%, that is not just millions potentially, that's tens of millions and sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars. So companies truly have an incentive now to take the extra steps laid out in the Monaco memo. Any thoughts along those lines?
1: Yeah. Something I wrote in a piece that we published in December was if it feels like The Department of Justice is putting pressure on compliance departments with all these changes. That's because they are. Something that Kenneth Polite had said when we had him at a keynote speaker at our national conference last year was that of all the jobs he's held leading up to his taking over the criminal division, his time as a CCO at Entergy was the hardest and most difficult of those jobs. He has a ton of respect for compliance officers. So in his mind, all these changes that they're being made is for the benefit of compliance officers trying to get these businesses to fall in line with the what the goals of the compliance officer are. I don't think any of these changes are too surprising with that in mind. It's going to remain to be seen what the effect is because I think like we saw with the CCO certification announcement is it's just there's a lot of uneasiness with a lot of these changes because they are happening so quick and they're seemingly happening without really being fleshed out to the public. I think with the certifications, so it was like three or four months of speeches is where we've got more and more details as opposed to getting that sort of lump sum guidance and how compliance officers love their guidance. And a lot of it's going to remain to be seen, but I do the main thing they're trying to do here is just get the compliance officer at the corporation in a better position to get their business to fall in line With what the department wants and that's businesses owning up to their mistakes and cooperating with the investigations that the government's undertaking
0: any other stories from either december or january either you're writing or developing or has come out that you'd like to highlight
1: yeah january's been off to a little bit of a slower start on the u.s side i think maybe it's that holiday hangover a little bit but one of the benefits of the way that we cover compliance is we look a lot toward other regions and really getting an ideas to what's emerging going on elsewhere. So some of the bigger stories we've had this month have actually really been originating out of Europe. There was a over $400 million GDPR fine against Meta that is one of, I think now three or four fines against the company to really come out over the last six months or so. So, you know, a lot to to be gleaned from this, a lot of the pressure that the Irish Data Protection Commission has put on the technology company. We also have a couple of AML enforcements in the United Kingdom. That's an area the UK is really trying to crack down on. I think over the last couple of years, London has had some bad press about the idea of money laundering running through its financial systems. So a lot of the UK regulators are really trying to strap up in that area. And then a couple of big changes at the CCO position that have, been, have come out just this week. Deutsche Bank is naming a new chief compliance officer. Dotska Bank's chief compliance officer is going to be leaving in 2024. So for us, these are the type of stories that we're always interested in following. But it's really not just about how compliance officers' jobs are affected by enforcement actions and policies, but also who's the who are the individuals that are in these prominent roles. That's where we've been at in, in January. And December, a big thing for us was, and I've teased this on some of our podcasts, is we rolled out our Inside the Mind of the CCO special report. And that's always just a, such a big release for us and really highlights not only what we learned from the previous year, but what we are going to be featuring and using as we move ahead. You mentioned that I wrote a column earlier this month, just previewing compliance storylines that I'd like to, or what I'd like to see for the year ahead. And a lot of that was really informed by the data that we got in our Inside the Mind survey. Good to, to hear from the community on their honest anonymous thoughts on the CCO certification, their honest thoughts on what their businesses are doing for recession preparation efforts. All these stories were really big traffic drivers for us. So it's good to see that payoff, but also just good to get a pulse on what the compliance community is thinking entering this new year.
0: Kyle, can I ask you to turn to perhaps February and anything that you are looking at to come out in February or maybe a little bit further down the road?
1: Yeah, right now we're working on our spring special report, which seems a little crazy to say when it's below 30 where I am these days, but we're looking ahead toward putting together a package on the US data privacy landscape. I think that's a pretty obvious storyline entering this year. We got state laws that are taking effect, to that have already taken effect January 1st. So the new law in California and then the data privacy law in Virginia. So what we want to do is just Reset the landscape, talk about all these laws and what's going on, talk about what businesses can do to comply with these laws. It's not so simple to say, I'll just comply with the most strict one and go from there. there. Every single one of these laws have their little individual quirks that need to be accounted for. That's what we are going to be starting the year off with is just a comprehensive look at where the U.S. stands from a data privacy perspective what the states are doing, what other states might be passing laws soon, what the federal government is doing or not doing, as it's really stood out in this area, but also some of the implications that are going on with the transatlantic data transfers. There's there's a lot under consideration in that area. Just one of the main things we're really looking at to really kick off our coverage this year is what we believe is going to be one of the more talked about compliance topics of the year.
0: So... We've got a big event coming up and I'd like to actually see if I could start teasing a little bit out of you out of it, which of course is Compliance Week 2023. I know we're in the now middle of the planning, but I was wondering if you might be able to give any teasers and specifically you have opened up and I'm going to change screens to get the title right. 2023 Excellence in Compliance Awards. So could you tell us a little bit about those?
1: Yeah. The Excellence Compliance Awards, this is going to be our fourth year doing it. So this was something we had started actually right, right before the pandemic. It was just an idea to recognize some of these individuals in the compliance professions and what they're doing at their businesses that really stands out. We, we had previously done Top Minds, which was our way of doing this for several years, but we wanted to shift it to be more of an award dynamic and give people a lot of the chance to nominate their peers nominate their colleagues and really recognize some of these movers and shakers in the industry. We're really excited to be doing this again. We give out six awards. It's Chief Compliance Officer of the Year, Compliance Program of the Year, Rising Star, Mentor, Compliance Innovator, and Lifetime Achievement in Compliance. And this is always a lot of fun for us. It really is a great opportunity for us to really hear some stories from some companies that are doing things that might not necessarily be above the radar. When we talk about our coverage last year, one of the stories I wrote was I interviewed Snap and their compliance team. And one of the things they did was they overhauled their, their code of conduct to really focus on the idea of kindness. And what does kindness really mean to this company? And how can we get that across to all of our employees? So really fascinating for us to be able to tell these stories and do so in a way that It might inspire a reader or something like that to take something back to their own company. Exciting to be able to do that again. Those nominations are going to be open on our website and running up till March. And then we do typically take a moment to record the winners at our national conference. You're not required to attend the conference to be a winner, but good to be able to recognize those that are in attendance and have them be spotlighted among their peers. In addition to that, we're at this point where really starting to draft out the agenda for the national conference and hoping to be able to have something preliminary up to the public sooner rather. Than. Right now, a lot of the focus is on trying to land those keynotes. This is really what our national conference can really, which is the idea that because it takes place in Washington, D.C., we do have a lot accessible. Last year, we had Kenneth plea at the DOJ. We had Allison Heron-Lee and Hester Perth from the SEC as speakers, and we also had Lawrence Schneier from OFAC. This year, trying to bring that same sort of heavyweight power and really be able to get these regulators to come through and talk about what they're working on with an audience of compliance officers. Hopefully leave some time for questions and get that little interaction there.
0: Kyle, let's turn to perhaps saving the world a little bit more than through compliance through uh, talk about some. as we record this, we're in the middle of the NFL playoffs. So I wanted to save the playoffs for perhaps another episode, but talk about one or two or even three of your top stories from the NFL season. See how close they are to mine.
1: I think one of the things that surprised me the most about this season, and maybe it's just the new reality with the NFL now having 17 games, and this is, I think, the second year, is really just the parity that was seen throughout the league. There were so many divisions where teams were separated by one game, or it really came down to the wire. You look at the Buccaneers winning the NFC South, and they really had to wrap that up at the very end, and uh, it was tight. The rest of the teams were right there in the race, and the same goes with the AFC East. They had three teams that had a chance at making the playoffs in the final week. I think always surprising. We got we get used to seeing the same faces moving on and whatnot, so it's good to see the league being diversified in that way. And so a lot of the other surprises I think originate from that. To see Aaron Rodgers and the Packers struggle as much as they did was really just not something we're used to. To see the Detroit Lions be able to rally like they did in the second half of the year and put themselves in position where in the final week of the season, they had a chance at making the playoffs. That for me is where really all of the surprises of the year originate from me. It's just how competitive the NFL felt this year. And I think that's good for the sport as a whole. You don't want a team to be eliminated week one. So it was just great to see so much of that moving around and whatnot. So that's where I think a lot of my focus is on is the surprises. It's just seeing how many teams were In it, out of it, really caught off guard by who was there toward the end.
0: So for me, perhaps with a little Regency bias, it was injuries ending with DeMar Hamlin. Yeah. And the catastrophic nature of what happened, seeing that play out in real time on live TV, not knowing at the time, but when the players stood up around him, he was actually getting CPR. And that's why they stood up. And I play football, and I can't imagine having to watch a teammate get CPR in front of me. But the, uh, the response of everyone other than the NFL to that, the trained EMS personnel who literally saved his life, who were on site, the announcers, I thought Joe Buck and Troy Aikman did as good a job as they could have under those circumstances. Obviously, Aikman, a former player. And then when ESPN cut to the studio with Adam Schechter and Booger McFarland, you could tell Booger McFarland was a former player. It was clear to me he did not want to be there, but his professionalism put him in that seat to talk. And I thought the ESPN studio coverage was really as fine as it could have been under that situation. And uh, obviously the game was suspended and then a no game was called. And I thought the coaches on the field, who said, look, the charger coach, excuse me, the Bills coach said, look, we can't play. And he was absolutely right. And I'm glad they didn't make him go back. And the Bengals supported that decision. They supported Hamlin. They supported their brother's teammates, both themselves and for the Bills. Obviously, the city of Buffalo has had a tough year. So the city rallied around him. But, the, but that wasn't the only injury. You and I talked about in a prior episode, Tua Tonga Valoa. And really the horror of seeing him get a concussion in game one and four days later get another concussion in game to the point where he couldn't stand unaided. And then he got a third concussion later in the season. And he was, he's announced he's ready to go for next season. Three concussions in, what, three months? That's a significant health risk. And these guys are doing this day in and day out and everyone else who was injured. It's a violent game. It's always been a violent game. It's a physical game. It's a lot of contact. These guys are big guys. They generate a lot of speed and they hit hard. And those turfs are not always the most comforting to fall on. So I'm not quite sure if there is an answer, but uh, Damar Hamlin, when you realize you actually could put your life on the line, I think that was pretty sobering, but I thought everybody just did as good a job as they could have given the catastrophic nature of those situations. But on the football side of things, the thing that struck me Kyle was I had always thought bring a new quarterback in gets a year or two. And you pretty much know if he's an NFL quarterback, the Buffalo bills quarterback proved that wrong a couple of years ago. And this year we had Daniel Jones and who I thought serviceable quarterback, but I never saw him taking a team to the playoffs particularly the New York giants. And he, what I saw, and even with Tua Baloa, I saw real improvement this year. And I had not really seen a quarterback at years three or four improve. And it almost ties to the point you raised with Aaron Rodgers. some of these guys at the ends of there that we've been part of our football watching for 10 plus years. I think Tom Brady still has it. And if you give him, if it's the last five minutes, I think that's the guy you want quarterbacking your team at age 45 or even above. So the quarterback play really struck me this year is I don't know how it could become a more quarterback centric league, but it's become a more quarterback centric. The quality of talent, like you said, across the board and the Detroit Lions, that was just the most amazing turnaround I've seen in quite some time and it'll be interesting to see what they can do going forward. The next topic. Oh, oh you got some more.
1: No, I just, I think when you're naming all these quarterbacks, there's one more we can't forget is Geno Smith, with the Seattle Seahawks. Where did that come from? Like, it, There's only 32 of these jobs in the NFL, so some of these guys, when they get a chance, they can really run with it. And we're seeing yep. it, we'll talk playoffs a little later, and maybe we'll be talking about Brock Purdy with the 49ers. Mr. Irrelevant, the last pick in the draft, and he's got his team in good position there. You, know, somebody's got, you get a shot and you just see what they do with it. It's nice to see.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it shows, once again, the draft is a whole lot more art than science. Oh, yes. The next topic, we're going to move to a little baseball and Carlos Correa, who has now committed to contracts for, uh, I think, about eight, seven to eight hundred million for next year. Unfortunately, he only signed one of those contracts. And this is one of the strangest situations I have ever seen. I have seen players fail physicals before, but I have never seen it of a top player of an injury that happened now nine years ago that he's never missed a day, as far as we know, on a disabled list or not playing because of it. So any thoughts on the Carlos Correa situation?
1: Yeah, these things are always really interesting when it plays out with a very prominent player. And like you said, this isn't the first time this sort of thing's happened, but it seems... I've never seen it happen where it's gone down multiple rungs, where it was the Giants, and then it was the Mets, and then it was the... And he finally did sign with the Twins, but... I think once you start to have these conversations about these contracts that go 13 years, 10 years, whatever it might be, you are looking at the, you're projecting. It might be that, hey, this has never been an issue in the last nine years, but there is reason to believe it will be an issue over the next 13 years. Because at the end of the day, these people are being paid just as much in year 13 as they are in year one in most of these deals. So you're not just looking at, okay, well, I'm trying to get the most out of this guy for the next four or five years. I'm trying to get the most out of this guy for the next 10 plus years. So that's where a lot of those conversations are had and where those concerns that might not seem significant really escalate very quickly. Now, in in my time as a baseball fan and as a close observer of the sport, I don't think I've ever seen one of these long-term contracts where the team has gotten their bang for the buck throughout the deal. The typical expectation is that if you're signing a person for 10 years, that first five or six years are probably gonna be the best of that deal. And then toward the end of that deal, they'll most likely become an albatross on the uh, payroll. And that's just the reality of aging in these sports. It's it's hard to stay nimble out there and do what you need to do on the field. These guys, as they are in the tail end of their contracts, maybe they're not a quality defender anymore and they're just a hitter. And maybe they don't even have that same skill as a hitter. It really comes down to just trying to project and get the most out of the player for the term of the contract. And I think the deal that he ultimately reached with the twins being a shorter term contract, that's why I think that physical played out the way it did. The, these doctors are, I think any team doctor is at pretty much at the top of their profession. They're probably all finding the same issue and raising the same concerns, but the deal that he signed with the twins being a shorter deal, there's just a lot less risk for the team there. If the medical understanding is that this leg could be an issue, down the road. Maybe we're just taking a lesser risk because if it happens in year six of a 10 year deal, that's four more years where you really ride it out. And we've seen that with players. I think David Wright is always the one that comes to mind with the Mets. He signed his long-term deal and concussions really took him out for the last four or five years of that deal. And it happens where these things come up and they really just take the back end of a deal and flush it to the side. It's all the due diligence that comes with
0: Bobby Bonilla day.
1: Yeah, and those deferred contracts are always something too. I think Max Scherzer had one, Matt Holiday had one. Those are painful too.
0: Let me change the focus just a little bit because I'm always intrigued when a sports writer moves on or retires and writes their final. They always talk about their mentors. Sometimes it's another reporter. Sometimes it's an editor. Sometimes it's someone who hauled them around to high school football games in West Texas. I had the opportunity to visit with your predecessor, Dave Lefort, about one of his mentors in the sports writing world, and that was Jackie McMullen. But I wanted to ask you, about your mentors, and who did you not so much look up to, but who really helped you get your foot in the door, get started, and maybe show you the ropes a little bit?
1: Yeah, let, for starters, let's hope my final column's a ways away. <laughs> I hope I'm not writing that one anytime soon. But for myself, I got my start in sport reporting at the age of 20. So I was really young and really raw, still. And so Once you're in that scenario, it really can feel larger than life. You're thrown right in and you have the same access to the clubhouse as much as the most veteran established reporter does. And you're seeing all these players and all these athletes that you watched as a kid, looked up to and idolized or whatever it might be. So, you know, it can really get you in a state of shell shock. For myself, it was, I benefited tremendously from the people that I had around me and the team at ESPN Boston at that time. The number one person I... Learned from, who really pushed me along in my career, who still to this day checks in on me and cares and wants to know what I'm doing, was Gordon Needs, who was the Red Sox reporter at ESPN at the time. He's now with Bally Sports, based out in Chicago. But Gordon really made it a point to invest in my future, which was something that I wasn't expecting from someone who was as big a name as he was. He really took the time really cared and got to know me. I would say that we became close personal friends as well, but he really made an effort to better what I was able to do. Came in there as green as you possibly could be. I think my second night I was, it was the night of the MLB draft, and he said, all right, I'm going to take care of the game tonight. You're going to handle the draft. And I remember him sitting and working with me as we we talked through the story I wrote, all the issues and the errors I made, because, of course, I made those because I was, as, as, like I said, as green as they come. It's very humbling to have someone like that and that big a name take that type of time and to say, all right, well, here's the direction I would have gone in this story. Or maybe you don't need this as much or maybe choose the, these words different. And a lot of what he taught me still carries over into the way that I conduct myself as editor in chief of compliance. I learned from him a lot of the skills that I use as an editor, reducing redundancy, changing certain words and really fine copy. But those are all skills that I picked up from him at a young age. Number one by far was my interactions with Gordon, but the way that my career path has gone was I started as a reporter and then shifted more toward editing. So. A lot of that was the assistance of the editors on the way. I had really good relationships with the ESPN Boston editors. They took a lot of time to work with me on my copy. I remember in some scenarios, visiting them at their personal houses and having them go over stuff with me and what they do. And that really pushed me toward the path of editing and where I'm at now in my career. So I think, like you said, everyone sort of have a story about who helped them out along the way. I think this is the type of industry where that really always comes through. So for me, I was just so incredibly fortunate to have such an opportunity at a young age. And to have all these people who are willing to take the time to recognize that I was putting the work in, I wanted to get better and invest their time to help me get better. I'm grateful to a lot of people that helped me put me in the position that I'm in right now.
0: Unfortunately, Kyle, we are near the end of our time for this episode. I am Tom Fox.
1: And I'm Kyle Brassett. Thanks for having me, Tom. Always a pleasure. Looking forward to the next time.
0: This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of From the Editor's Desk. I hope that you will check out the new podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network, The Corruption Files. It's an exploration of some of the top anti-corruption enforcement actions over the past 15 years or so. Together with Mark DiBernardis, partner at Hughes Hubbard, we take a deep dive into some of the top FCPA and other anti-corruption cases that have uh, percolated since 2008 or so. I know you'll enjoy it. It's a great wrap-up. From the Editor's Desk is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.